0: Today, I have another exciting episode for you. Peter is a visionary leader with over 30 years of educational expertise and is known for his transformational insights and commitment to innovative student-centered learning. He has been a school leader in four states and independent schools. Peter is also a co-founder and director of Future Schools. This membership organisation supports over 100 future-focused schools collaborating and innovating together across the independent, Catholic and government sectors, with representation in every state, over 32,700 students and over 4,680 educators. I hope that you get as much out of this wide-ranging discussion as I did. Peter, welcome to the podcast. Uh, thanks so much for talking to uh, with me. I'm really grateful that you take the time.
1: No worries, Ben. Looking forward to the opportunity.
0: Where are you? Uh, where are you phoning in from?
1: Uh, so I'm coming to you from uh, the Macedon Ranges in Victoria, uh, where we've got 40 acre farm, which is a lovely place to retreat to at the end of a busy day as uh, as a principal.
0: Amazing. And uh, how long have you been uh, enjoying
1: farm life? Are you originally from the country? Uh, no, no. I grew, grew up in a very multicultural area called Clayton, and uh, but we've we've owned this property for twenty two years. So. Fantastic.
0: Uh, is uh, there an item that's still on your bucket list? Something that you would still like to tick off?
1: Well, I'd like my girls, who are twenty six and twenty three, to get a move on with some grandchildren. But uh, <laughs> my new role as executive director at Gisborne Montessori is. Filling the gap admirably because we've got 110 young people.
0: Fantastic. And quite possibly the most uh, important question for uh, our conversation. Uh, What's your coffee order for when I can finally uh, head down and buy a coffee?
1: Very, very basic. Latte, extra shot, one sugar. Fantastic.
0: And final uh, rapid fire question. Um, Is there a perspective that you think is true that other people think is crazy?
1: Oh, goodness.
0: We can loop Um, back to that if you'd like.
1: No, look, I I think many of the things that I think are truth in education, a lot of people think are crazy, but I I would contend that there's a a fairly devout ban, not not devout to me, but devout to the view that education in its traditional form really only services about a third of the population. Um, You know, a third sort of stumble through and a third, it's a complete disaster for, but I, I don't know that I would be Robinson Crusoe in that regard.
0: Interesting. And um, what what was your experience like at school? Uh, was there a, a a moment that you remember particularly fondly, or 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 not so much? Uh, were you one of those third that found the current education system appealing? Uh,
1: definitely not. Um, you know, I was doing really well through finger painting and Kiss Chasey. Uh, things got things got a bit more serious when we started doing this reading and writing stuff because I'm dyslexic and um pretty soon I found that kids that I thought that I was you know like one always pegs you know you always peg yourself within a class in terms of intellect and things like that and I could see kids that I knew that I was you know smarter than if you will um you know very easily coping with the the reading and writing and I was just like really battling uh Mm. And that sort of, you know, I think that was like about grade one, something along that line, and then it just sort of started off as ritualised humiliation day after day for the next 12 years. Um, so it wasn't good. And the school that I went to, you know, which is a allegedly, well, it is a very prestigious uh, single-sex boys' school in Melbourne, and um, it was just brutal, and I mean brutal, brutal. Uh, you know, I travelled every day for an hour on the bus, and I can't re- really recall a day where there wasn't blood spilt on the bus, and that was just like Lord of the Flies type. Um, wow. You know, who who could be the back seat tough? The further that b- b- towards the back that you sat, the higher you were in the pecking order, and you know, the further that you sat towards the front, the more you were ridiculed, and um Gosh. You know uh, that that sort of thing, but it still gave enormous impetus to see how far back you could sit and still survive the bus trip. Um, wow. So I think I think I travelled for for most of those the seven years of secondary school on some sort of adrenaline fueled high.
0: Wow! Not a good way to start school, is it?
1: I, when I left, I th- I swore that I would never come back. Even so, even for my own kids, I was never going to come back.
0: So. Peter, you know, that's a, a a question that we will put uh, on pause for the moment because obviously you are incredibly involved in schools and and are now back in the school system. But what what do you think that taught you? I mean, you mentioned as a year a student in year one, realizing that you didn't fit in, realizing that they were students that were different to you. Um, what was that like as a six or seven year old boy?
1: Just totally confusing. Yeah. Like it, it was just this sort of moment of realisation, like what is going on here? This doesn't make sense. Wow. You know, like I, I knew that I was reasonably intelligent and yet, you know, things as basic as small words, I actually have more difficulty spelling small three and four-letter words than I do with larger words because they have more structure to them with, you know, hang-ups and hang-downs in terms of, you know the D's and G's and H's and anything that's got an upward uh, hanging letter. But wow. you know, I would read something and then look back, and then the vowels were different, wow. and that was that was just incredibly confusing and frustrating.
0: And as a um, for those people that can't see, obviously, I, I, I'm speaking to you on Zoom, and and it even seems like. Um, as a grown man looking back on those years, it's still particularly painful and particularly oh, challenging yeah. to
1: yeah. to recall. Would that be would, would that be true? No, that would be fair. And yeah. you know, like I've got two girls. Uh, as I said, 20, 26 and twenty three. And um, the the eldest is straight, uh, academic. You know, very, very capable. You wow. know, things came easily. Um, the younger you know, got a fair whack of the dyslexic stick. Wow. And in some way, I think my work in education has been both rescuing a Mm -hmm. version of my younger self, uh, creating a school for uh, my younger daughter, even though she was past that time, Uh, by the time that I actually got TC to the point where I would have enrolled her, she was already you know, out of that age, wow. perhaps perhaps creating a school for uh, potential grandchildren because inevitably a number of them are going to be dyslexic. Wow. Yeah, so there's a whole probably, you know, I probably need to be in therapy to, to fully unpack that. But, yeah, it still hurts. Like, that's trauma.
0: Wow. And, Peter, I'm so grateful and and so I feel so honoured that you would share that story with me and obviously share that story with the audience. And and in a little while, we're going to talk about some of the amazing, um, your amazing career trajectory. And I'm going to ask why on earth you would go back to school considering your uh, considering your experience. But was, was there any positive experiences that you had in school? I mean, was there a, a teacher or was there someone that took the time to get to know you and make a difference in your life? But was it all as awful as it sounds?
1: No, no, there were, you know, you have to, like, Dyslexia, or dyslexics, or dyslexia is a is and I'm not saying that's my defining feature, but it's a significant part sure. of who I am. But dyslexics are incre- like they they go one of two ways. So they're uh, you know uh, the modern sort of interpretation is that there's about ten percent of people who are dyslexic. Uh, they're three times overrepresented in the entrepreneurship area, wow. um, so and some strengths as well. Ah, oh, absolutely, but the sad the sad state is that about fifty percent of all prisoners are dyslexic. Gosh, so you you go one of two ways.
0: Yeah.
1: Uh, but you do become incredibly resilient. And the reason that, I, in my view, that people become entrepreneurs is that, you know, whenever they whenever they were young, and this is true for me, when when you tried to follow the rules, you were almost des- certainly destined for failure in an mm-hmm. in any sort of academic sense. And so you had to become a salesperson, a con artist, uh, if you will, to try and get out of you know things that were going to be incredibly humiliating. Uh, you had to be able to sort of, you know, uh, you know, I, I was the, I, I I even went to the point where I was the sick monitor. So, back in my day, you know, if, if some kid vomited in the hall, which was fairly common because we used to get free milk, which used to sit out on the step for about a few hours and curdle. Um, for those who are old enough to remember when we got free milk. Uh, and so no, I never actually did... remember that. I was born in you the remember UK that? and
0: I remember. Yeah. Um, getting milk but in england the milk would be
1: nice and cool because it would be, be cool oh well it wouldn't be curdled but well, so in our, in our case there would be almost daily there would be a kid vomiting yeah. and i was happy to be the sick monitor because it meant that i would be out of class so yeah. um so, so yeah you, you 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 end up learning the ability to find the loopholes to yeah. you know manipulate the system to suit yourself because you know that the system's not set up for you so you have to do that
0: was there a teacher Peter that made a difference in your life was there someone that took the time to um to get to know you and 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 invest into you no that's do do you know what Peter it you're the first like I've had the privilege of interviewing more than 100 amazing educators and you're the first person that said that has said that there wasn't which is really sad. There wasn't a single.
1: Oh, look, there were there were there were definitely no teachers. That... Yeah, there were definitely teachers who were better than others. Um, <laughs> but I think I think to be honest, by that stage, I'd become so resentful for the system. I was a complete smart aleck, and so you know that's pretty repugnant to most teachers. So, you know, I didn't like them. They didn't particularly like me. Like. You know, there were teachers that I got on better than others, but I don't think anyone saw any great potential in me or anything like that. Well, although there was... there was, a, I think this is a funny story. Um, I ended up being a prefect in the school. Okay? Oh, how did that... And, well, I was oh. mystified too, and... Um, because I was good at sport, which is what a lot of dyslexics do—is they throw themselves into something else. And so I was, you know, I was quite good at at, at a range of sports and captained a few teams and so forth. But, um, you know, and somehow I'd got put forward to, you know, to be in the mix for prefects. And we had like this whole hierarchy. It was amazing, you know, uh, prefects and house prefects and probationary prefects and everything else. And to be a prefect, you actually had more power in those days than you did as a teacher. Wow. Like you, you could take kids to the school marshal and have them caned, um, you know, which is exactly as draconian as it sounds. And so, you know, like, uh, you know, I, I probably was wanting some of that, I don't know, that power, if you will, yeah. over a system that I didn't feel like I had much of anyway. Out of like we went on this camp and that was, you know, pretty interesting. And I ended up as a prefect. And, you know, that was pretty amazing. And later when I became an educator, I went back and visited my old school and spoke to the headmaster. And I've gone, can I just ask? I've gone, why did you make me a prefect? And he and he sort of sat back and he he said, Well, frankly, Peter, I was afraid of what would happen if I didn't. So I think he I think he thought that I would spark insurrection in the in the school or something along that line. so
0: Peter, why why on earth uh, go back into education? And for those people that aren't familiar with your story, um, would you mind giving us a bit of a brief history um, through your career in education and how did we get to here right now?
1: Yeah. so you know, I, I left swearing I would never come back Uh, (laughs) I went into uh, property development and I actually did exceedingly well in that for a while just doing sort of dual occupancy property developments and so on and it was the late 80s when greed was good and you know you could make incredible amounts of money very quickly and um, I was very close to being a millionaire by the time I was 21 um, and a million back in 87 or 88 was was a lot of money, yeah. Not like a million now, yeah. but by the time of my twenty first birthday, I had ten thousand dollars and was very close to being bankrupt, um, because we had the recession that we had to have. You know, Paul Keating's comment yeah. about the banana republic, et cetera, and uh, I, I basically lost everything. And when you back in those days, you know, it was the old Gordon Gecko, greed is good days, um, and if you tie your if you tie your self-worth to how much money you have and then you lose it, mm. you've actually lost everything. Huge, yeah. So at the end of that, I had basically no other choice than to escape uh, to Cape Tribulation and lived on the beach there for six months while I got myself together because the alternative mm. was a lot worse than that. Uh, and I'd, I would go up and down the beach digging these holes that you could easily bury a four-wheel drive in and then just picking up rubbish, which for those that have ever known me in education, i picked up a lot of rubbish in the last 30 years. But I was just combing the beach and picking up rubbish and throwing it in these massive holes. And then when that hole was filled, I'd cover it over and dig another hole. And I did that for six months. Um and then I decided that you know I needed to sort of you know get back into society, and uh, I applied for the police force, ASIO, uh, ASIS, which is the spies, spies and spy catchers, and um, teaching, and I don't know why I applied for teaching, but I got into the police force. I got into you know got through the the selection part for spies and spy catchers, but you know. Well, actually, I, I probably would have been in the police force, which would not have been a good outcome for me. But um, anyway, the, the state went broke and they put a freeze on recruiting. So I, you know, I was two weeks before going into the academy and they put a freeze on that. Uh, I went through all the briefing for the spy stuff. And essentially, you have to be a liar and being a spy catcher is just boring sitting in a car watching for people moving. Um, and so I started doing teaching and uh i just really loved it because i you know even though i was a, a commerce major and accounting major um they gave me pe because mm. i was good at sport <laughs> uh and i was just having a ball and i could turn up every day in a track suit and i thought oh this is great so um i never wanted to sit down ever again so that was how i went into teaching yeah wow um, yeah and so uh within a relatively short space of time 12 months um i was the school was growing exponentially it was in the uh, southeast suburbs of melbourne you know pakenham area and um you know the school uh, i think more than quadrupled in the five years that i was there and uh i was just having a ball teaching pe and i was made head of house after 12 months i had some some I did Army Reserve there for a while and I was an officer in that and, um, you know, arguably learned a lot of leadership skills through that. So I was asked to be a head of house after 12 months, did that for four years, Um, and then we had a child and then for some strange reason I was made I was appointed as a deputy headmaster at I think I was 30 uh, at Braemar College in Woodend and, yeah, so... What Was last that like 25 I, years as deputy? Oh, what was sorry, that as,
0: like as, as a 30 year old being appointed into that leadership position? Because I don't know about you, I am I now round up to 40, uh, which I'm okay with. Uh, yeah. but um, I think about myself when I was 30, I thought I knew everything, and then looking back, I didn't know an awful lot. Was that the oh, same? I
1: did know everything, okay. <laughs> Sorry. I thought I knew everything what, like what
0: you. was that experience yeah. like I mean I would imagine as a 30 year old had you had a child by then had you
1: yep yeah so I
0: had you were a relatively recent dad you were someone who didn't particularly uh didn't have a great experience at school now you're in a school leadership position and a rapidly growing school like what what was that like and yeah looking back on that experience what was that like
1: yeah so it was, it was an it was an interesting one um uh, I was the fourth youngest member of staff. And uh, one of the most senior? Sorry, everyone else was old. Like, and one of the um, most
0: senior positions that you Yeah, were. Yeah,
1: I was the second in the school. Um, oh, yeah. The the fortunate thing was the, the, I don't think Philip will mind me saying this, but Philip Grutzner was the principal and he was 36. Um, he's currently principal of Melbourne Grammar, which you couldn't almost get further away from my trajectory in Phillips. And, you know, we've laughed about that since. But um, I think he just needed to appoint somebody who was younger than he was. Um, yeah. And so I, I had no real appreciation of what it was to be a deputy. And so I think I tried to model myself on the deputy that, of the school that I'd just left, who had, you know, a great guy, like very very funny but um, almost had a british affected accent even though he wasn't british and uh, i just took on his mannerisms i became a 50 year old male mm. um you know i could spot a black tick on a a black nike tick on a sock at 100 meters i locked that school down within an inch of its life you know i ran it so tight um you know once <laughs> i was saying this to somebody else the other day but You know, we had this sort of strict liability uh, set of consequences called the clear rules, and I had a parent who was ringing me because her child was going to get a detention because she didn't have her sports uniform or something like that. And she goes, but, Peter, it's my fault that she hasn't got her sports uniform. And I said, well, I guess you could do the detention for her. (laughs) Sure, that went down well. Oh well, I said, look, I'll you know I'm I'm fair. I'll give you your own room. So (laughs) she said, my daughter will do her detention. I don't think she liked me from then on. But I just think it's hilarious that that this sort of like incredibly tight, um, rule following deputy then went on. Or I'm talking in the third person now, which just sounds bizarre. But you know, I then went on to um to take this role at Templestowe College. And, you know, it it was, it went on, it grew from 286 kids to 1,150. It was recognised as one of the most innovative schools in the world. You know, we employed 115 kids to help run the school. We had 80 businesses from ideation to operation, no year levels, no compulsory subjects, uh, three starting times. So students could start at 7.15 in the morning and finish at 1.15, start at nine, finish at 3.30, start at ten fifteen, finish at five fifteen. so you know it it was very much out there on the edge like it, it it's still you know if you look up a, a number of lists, it's still regarded as one of the the most innovative schools around in globally um which just seems like an incredible distance from you know where I was giving detentions to parents
0: so Peter, I'd love to um, unpack that um, in a moment, but uh, what you said sort of really struck me about um, how you when you first stepped into a role, you were trying to be someone that you clearly weren't. And um, mm. do you think that that you were? I mean, talk to me about that. Talk to me about what you learned about yourself. And um, how did you begin to find your own feet as a leader? And uh, because I remember when I first started in a leadership role, I was trying to be someone that I thought was that in that particular role. So I was imitating them. I would wear certain colors i remember speaking with a certain language and then i got to the point a few years later and i thought this just isn't me i'm doing a terrible job of implement of of imitating this person and talk to me about that process for you and how did you begin to find your own voice as a leader or, or are you still finding it
1: yeah look it it's a it's an it's an interesting one like you know when i when i was appointed I wasn't like, you know, the school was, I think, 400 and it was, you know, it was it was dodgy, like in terms of financially, like we, we were probably almost trading whilst insolvent, um, you know, made that classic mistake of holding on to, you know, kids that were bullies because we were worried about enrollments and then you'd lose four enrollments and still have the bully. You know, we were just so desperate for enrollments Um but I wasn't worried about because ours, the school that I'd come from, it like ended up like quite a large school. It was twelve hundred when I finished, and you know this was a little school of four hundred, and like it was, you know, my my house I think was two hundred that I was head of house for, um, and it had, you know, Rick Tudor was the principal there, and like, you know, for anyone who doesn't know Rick, he's just like, I don't know, he's he, he is a legend certainly within Victoria, but I think, you know, nationally, um, just an incredible leader incredible and a great builder of others that was that's his that's his legacy like so many of those heads of house and we're all you know most of us really young but so many have gone on to significant leadership positions within education uh but anyway i wasn't i wasn't worried about doing the the um you know the pastoral care you know that was easy like Our our demograph was pretty much, you know, upper middle class and the demograph that I'd come from, you know, was middle to lower. And, you know, I'd dealt with things that even the principal was shocked, you know, could happen in schools. Like we'd dealt with some very, very serious stuff. So I wasn't worried about that. I wasn't worried about talking to the parents. I wasn't about really worried about managing staff or anything like that. Um, The thing that worried me was talking at assembly isn't that interesting? I actually got the maintenance guy uh, or the, um, the who also did some of their RIT. And I said, you know, because we had this very nice hall. And I, I said, okay, I want you to set up the PA. And he did that for me. And I said, now I want you to lock the door and go away. And I rehearsed for hours how to ask the school to stand, to sit, you know, Practiced rehearsing, getting kids to come up and perform, all of that sort of thing. Of all the things, that was the thing that was really worrying me. Interesting. Oh, I mean
0: that that's that's really fascinating, um, Peter. And considering, obviously, your role at that time demanded a a, a public persona. It's interesting the thing that kind of caused you a little bit of anxiety and nervousness. And I, I'm really interested in um, in your experience with Rick, um, Peter. So I was just wondering if you wouldn't mind, and I'm sure we couldn't possibly, uh, we hmm. could do multiple podcasts with him and his leadership, but what was it in particular that made him such a good builder of others?
1: Yeah, it's a really interesting question and not one that I've really reflected on. Um, he really cared. Uh, and he, he, over, he overlooked tactically, not even sure it was consciously, but he tactically overlooked when you're stuffed up. Yeah. You know, like so much of, you know, current education is around this, you know, accountability and targets and standards. And, and, you know, there's a place for that, of course. But Rick looked for character. He appointed on character. And, you know, sometimes like back then, I really stuffed up. And he would just, you knew that he knew, and he knew that you knew that he knew, et cetera. Mm. And he would just, he would just back you and just say, you know, like you'd be waiting for the, he used to have these like colored slips that would end because you didn't have email back then. God, that was a good day, wasn't it, when there was no email? But there were these colored slips, and, you know, if you stuffed up, you'd find one in your pigeonhole. And, you know, I came in a couple of times waiting for this, you know, slip saying, come and see me and let's have a chat about X. And you'd come in and, yep, sure enough, there'd be a slip in there. And you'd go, oh. And you'd sort of like through winced half-reading eyes, you'd read it and it would go, thanks so much for the great work you're doing with the swimming team. Right, wow. And you'd just go, Rick, I know that you know, you know, what happened but he, he just wouldn't do it. But you never wanted to let the guy down either. Because mm. you you knew he had your back.
0: I um I I feel that way. I mean, I have a um I work in an incredible school and with an incredible principal. And um I, I, I can relate to that very much. And I think like it's it's made me really think about um about leadership and 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 what makes a good leader and how that notion has changed over the years and thank thank goodness it has and um have you ever had a conversation um and thanked Rick yeah Because that would that would be interesting because I I I'm going to assume that he had no idea of the impact that he had um he didn't quite like is that true was he surprised was it what was that conversation like
1: I think like Hmm. Interesting. I think he's a very self-aware person, which I think is a, you know, if there's a significant quality of leadership, it is self-awareness. Yeah. And I, I think indirectly he did know the impact because it wasn't only on me. Like this guy was amazing. Like he could have a, an assembly of 1300 and pick a, a student out by name from the back of their head. You know, when they were turning around and talking to somebody, he he would rec- he still recognizes people down the street and says, "Oh, how's your mum?" and mentions them by name, like he is just a he is the person who knows more people than anyone by name yeah. and something interesting about you. And he 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 taught me a methodology which I have used periodically. Where he, I said, Rick, how do you do this? Like, how do you know so many names and something about them and he goes well you know obviously the the something about them helps me remember who they are but he would sit down every morning and flick through photos and and have marked those kids who he hadn't yet sort of mastered their names and he would just do that every day
0: it's the little things isn't it the little Mm. daily and i would imagine peter um as a school leader, as someone who is running a school, you are incredibly busy. And so do you think there was a a conscious effort on his part to make space to do that? Um, was that a, or was it just something he was naturally good at or a bit of both?
1: No, he he did it in, I don't know, somebody probably, well, am assuming somebody might have given him the heads up as to some tactics. I certainly learned from his tactics and then employed them. But, you know, he he once said to me, I come to school to work with people. I'm paraphrasing, but I come to school to work with people, and I go home to do my principalship. So, in other words, what he was saying was, when he's at school, he's available to people, and when he was at home, then he did everything else, like all the paperwork, all the everything. And you know, there's no doubt. Like I, I knew his family. Like you know, he was. That's another thing. You know, he would invite you know staff to his home you know have a home cooked meal all of that sort of thing and so we we got to know his family including his kids who weren't at the school um you know we got to know the whole family really really well and we knew like everybody knew the kids knew the parents of this at the school knew the sacrifice that he was making to to build this school and it it was back in the days of the low-fee independent schools. It was one of the very first of those. So, you know, um, John Lever started those and, you know, like, well, John, I've never actually met John, but, you know, like what he's done for education is just, you know, mind-blowing in terms of the number of schools and school systems that he started. But everybody knew that Rick was sacrificing and put the kids almost ahead of he, almost ahead of his own family.
0: Wow. How um, Peter, how would you define leadership and what are some of your strengths, do you think? We haven't asked anybody from your team, uh, which would make a fascinating podcast interview, but uh what are how would you define leadership and and yeah, what what are some of your strengths, do you
1: think? Okay, so because I've because I've presented on leadership, I can give you a definition. Right. It. And it's a definition that I've thought deeply about. And my definition of leadership and i i'd love to debate somebody about this because you know I, I love to debate ideas i'm not saying that i'm right on everything i just i love to debate ideas and concepts but my my definition of leadership is getting other people to act in a way that they otherwise wouldn't mm. so if you think about that you can have positive leadership you can have negative leadership you can get people to act in a negative way you can get people to act in a positive way both the leadership um of course society wants positive leadership but you can have both it also it also then means that you can lead by example which i used to think wasn't a form of leadership you know when somebody was role modeling but if the role modeling causes somebody to act in a way that they otherwise wouldn't then my new understanding is yep that's absolutely leadership but if but if everything you do doesn't cause people to act in a way if you're just like cheering people along and and it doesn't cause them to either change or modify, then you're actually not leading. Yeah. You're just managing.
0: And do you think um sorry, Peter, let me rephrase that. Um, what are some leadership areas that you think you are particularly strong at? And what are some that you think you have had to develop or are continue to
1: develop? Um in Very terms of question. in terms of um strengths Uh terms of getting people to modify, I I unequivocally understand that you can't do anything by yourself. Yeah. Not, not at scale. Um so you need to have others with you. I, I think I'm a fairly good spotter of talent. Mm-hmm. Uh it, you know, student empowerment is is probably the thing that I'm most sort of known for, if you will. Mm-hmm. Um and if you're gonna have student empowerment then you probably probably i'm not saying it's a hundred percent you probably need uh teacher and and you know i i I don't we we call them guides which is both teachers and support staff any any adult that's in a school should be a guide and i think i'm fairly I, i hope i'm fairly good at building up people like that although you do have to be careful with empowering adults because when you empower adults, you, you can inadvertently disempower young people because adults are just better at it. They've been around longer. They've got greater skill set, et cetera. And so if you have a high – I've seen this many, many times. You've got a school of highly empowered staff and the kids are doing well, but they're, um, they're in some ways not empowered themselves and the reason for that is the, the adults are filling the space. Mm. Some of the most empowered populations of young people is where the where the staff are disengaged, couldn't give a damn, because then it creates the vacuum for the young people to step into the space. Yeah. Right. I um, couldn't agree more. I, I, think, I think one of my attributes is that I, I have this ingrained it's almost like a pathological belief in the power of young people
0: wow do you you feel peter that you're um are you in any way do you think trying to give students an experience that you didn't have in school because you mentioned that yeah i think think that's not a bad thing an admirable quality yeah because there would undoubtedly be students um, in your care that if you're not careful, could have a similar experience to what you had, which was not oh, totally Most,
1: all the schools that I've been in are, are almost, sorry, not all in a in a post kind of very interesting first experience in the state system, which I'll just gloss over, but certainly from Templestowe onwards, my utter belief in young people and what they're capable of, I probably have more confidence in young people than I, in some ways I do in generalising adults because they haven't been corrupted.
0: What was it? I mean, you mentioned Templestone a number of times, and yeah. what was it that had such an impact on you at that school? Because that the name of that school and their reputation has come up multiple times with many of the people that have interviewed. So, what was what was it that was so transformative for you?
1: Well, I'm just going to pitch my book called Turning Around a Troubled School, which is available both on Audible, because, of course, all dyslexics should publish on Audible at the same time, as putting it on paper. Um, but I sort of do cover the turnaround period of that on this book, Turning Around a Troubled School.
0: And I'll but, make sure, Peter, that I have links to that, obviously, in the show notes so people can get in touch. But it is a... Um, yeah. Believe yeah.
1: me, I'm not making any money out of that, but it's it's <laughs> like a... It's there is no money
0: in educational publishing. It's,
1: it's an expensive uh, business card that people have more trouble throwing away because people who are not dyslexic have issues throwing away books. So,
0: um, so without um, without stealing the thunder of your book, um, yeah. what was it um, that was so powerful about your experience at Templestone?
1: So when when I started, and this is like I, I think I mentioned this in the book. Um, uh, but I'd, I'd applied for thirty principalships, thirty. It's a lot. that like, takes a lot of resilience because in you know, and these were all state system uh, at the time. So each one takes about a day of preparation. You know, on a Saturday or Sunday. I know and well. Like some sometimes, like this was so galling. Like it not not since school that I felt so rejected. But like sometimes they wouldn't even appoint anyone. So they'd they'd rather have nobody than have me, twice in one occasion. And that school is still stuffed, frankly. So I hope they look back at that selection panel, the youngest member of whom was 60, who thought that, you know, I think I was 40 at the time. No, that can't be right. Yeah, about 40 at the time. And I hope they look back and go, well, perhaps we made the wrong decision there. but. You know, when I when I started at TC, we just we just I just wanted a school that was functional. You know, um, I had some views on education, but I hadn't really like ex- my own views, but I hadn't really had a chance to put them into play because I'd been a deputy um, uh, prior to then. But um, when I when I started at TC, I just tried to make it like my my thought was let's create because, I, you know, I've spent 15 years in the independent system prior and then at that stage I'd spent six years in the state system and I thought, I'm just going to create an independent school at a state school price tag. Like that's going to work, you know. And um, so I just set about doing that and, you know, Templestowe is surrounded by some really high-performing state schools and a Mm. lot. A lot of high performing independent schools. Like it's close to the Q belt of schools, which is the highest yeah, concentration of schools in the Southern Hemisphere. Um, and so you know, all these parents were contacting me and going, well, That sounds great. As soon as your marks improve, we're going to enroll. Well, it was a catch-22, couldn't get the enrollment, you know, and couldn't lift the marks because we we essentially had fallen from a school over the four years previously, had fallen from a school of a thousand down to, you know, 286. Um, So it was pretty catastrophic. So all the staff with the get up and go had got up and gone, other than a small band of committed souls, along with those who couldn't get out uh, because they were too expensive. Uh, And so, like, we are really stuck. And twice Hmm. the regional director um, had uh, Jim Watterston, who's now the head of... um, uh Melbourne Graduate School of Education. We had dinner, or we were at a dinner the other night, and we were just laughing about about the fact that twice he'd told the college council that they should close because the school had no viable future, um, which is interesting as to where it ended up. but um so we we just couldn't do it. We didn't have any market, and then I, I thought, well, You know, I was just reflecting every school aims for the same band of students, you know, the high performing academic, the high performing, you know, uh, performing arts, the high performing everything. What about all those kids that aren't in that top, Mm. like, let's call that 10 percent? Every school markets for this top 10 percent of students. Well, you know, those other 90 percent, somebody loves that kid, you know, hope. Yeah. Like somebody, for them, that, that's their most special person. And and I started to think, well, what if we went the other way? What if we aimed at those kids who nobody, or no school seems to love? Nobody makes them feel special. Um, let's go for those students. And so we we started this marketing campaign, you know, be a name, not a number. Life is too short to be miserable at school you know, uh, write your own story at TC, you know, that sort of thing. And we, we spent probably more than we should have on, well, not Nineshut, but, you know, we spent a large amount of money on getting the message out there because we didn't even have any public road frontage. We are up a court. The entrance to the school is literally up a court. So we couldn't, didn't even have any passing traffic, no signage, no nothing. And so, you know, we needed to get the message out there. I I kid you not, I tried to get an elephant to come to the school because we had a working with animals program and I was going to get, you know, I was doing it as a publicity stunt. I offered 10 grand to a circus to give us Saigon, the last performing elephant in Australia, and we were going to write on the side of this elephant, we do things big at TC.
0: You sound like some sort of an educational Richard Branson that just does things, goes goes big or goes home. And I yeah. I I love that. I mean, there's um as you mentioned before, like I I have a little one who has just started school and so now these discussions that I have the privilege of having with educators like yourself are are that much more personal because I'm sure you don't want anybody else to go through the experience that you had at school and yeah. and you, you change that. And I think there would be so many people that had a negative experience at school that are still, that are not doing anything with that experience. And thank goodness that there's people like you that have actually decided, you know what, I know what it feels like to feel lost and to feel unheard and unseen in a classroom. And I don't want anyone else to feel that way. I think it's incredibly admirable.
1: Well, it is, but it's not good enough. Exactly. Because... because... Because one, like, you know, and it's not only me. There's no, like, I'm not or suggesting that. But, like, the the sad reality is most schools are still going for that 10% of elitist kids as though they're some sort of special prize rather than looking at every young person as, you know, what are their strengths? What can they offer? Because, frankly, ChatGPT has just done away with most of those top 10% of kids, Mm. you know. Like what what special skills do they have? Everything, you know, like regardless of what that is, we're just squandering, you know, like um, Sir Ken Robinson, who, you know, I had the enormous pleasure of co-presenting with and spoke to on a number of occasions. You know, he was just the, like he was an inspiration, okay? I'll put him up there with another inspiration now. And I was just incredibly fortunate to be at the right place at the right time and, you know, and speak with him. But you know when you read his stuff about you know what yeah. are the strengths that people have those successful people those you know a plus kids like some of them do go on and make a difference but they they basically keep the world ticking over it's the it's the weird people it's the it's the neurodiverse it's the quirky people that change the world
0: yeah i'm just wondering peter have you had the privilege of um uh hearing the work of Richard Jerva and oh. he um so he was on episode number one he so graciously agreed to talk with me when I had no mm-hmm. reputation or listenership um and he is one of the people and he um uh, worked closely with Sir Ken for many years and oh he, yeah
1: no I do know yeah yeah, yeah. he
0: uh, the reason why I thought about him when you are talking about turning around uh, school is because yep. he did something really similar and I think that would be a wonderful... Um, I can introduce you both if you haven't already yep. um, done so, but he is, for me, he is an inspiration and I, I actually go back and know this is very sad, but I'll go back and listen to that episode I did <laughs> um, Times because yep. he talks about exactly what you're talking about, how like we... there's. There's just too much at stake to continue doing things that don't work and to continue to isolate children that don't feel like they belong. And I yeah. think about the, the 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 millions of children over the years that just the traditional schooling system just has not worked. And we just need to do better than what we currently have done with, with those But
1: stories. the irony is like, you know, for all the data informed and put faces on the data and every other high impact teaching strategy, it's not like we don't know that it's failing kids. And that—that's the crime of this—I don't know—century, yeah. I, I guess it is this century because, for you know, ever since we've introduced NAPLAN, basically our our education system, not, the outcomes are getting worse for twenty years, and we know it's happening. We know that you know, post-COVID, schools are having enormous difficulty getting significant numbers of kids back. You know, we have to punish them and monitor attendance you know we have to we have to monitor to see that they come to school and and work with their peers like surely that's what adolescents want to do so you know?
0: Peter, i want to be look, i, I want to be respectful of your time and this is a whole nother podcast yeah. episode in itself and i would love to um tap you on the shoulder at some point and do a round two because i think there is so much in this um but why do you think we continue to do this then? If we know better, if we know it doesn't work, if there are people that are having this experience in schools, why do we, why do, we do better? Why, why do we do this?
1: There, there's, a number, there's a number of things. Like, you know, this is such a complex question. The, co- the mental concept, the mental image of school is so indelibly imprinted on our psyche like you can you can watch kids playing school that have been through a non traditional school system, and you'll see a teacher at the front in a very authoritarian way, you know, teaching, pointing at a at a whiteboard or you know something like that. Like short of marriage, that's the only stronger uh, mental conception of of a human made phenomenon. Like short of marriage, there's there's nothing else that's as strong as yeah. what is a school, and that's you know one teacher you know, group of students, you know, largely, you know, telling all of those kids sitting, you know, that, that, that is almost indelibly imprinted on people's heads, you know. I was listening to this thing the other day. Why do we use QWERTY keyboards when we know that it was actually designed to slow people down when we had manual typewriters and yet we haven't adopted that? Like we, we hang on to stuff well after it's used by date and look, the other the other thing is there's a lot of the the people leading the system, politicians, bureaucrats, they did well in the system. The third that succeeded in schools are now running the whole thing, so they're not going to change it because it up, up, it upsets the world for their own kids. And you know, um, furthering the furthering the advancement of our own children is a generic genetically pre-programmed thing you know it's an evolutionary thing that we advantage our own children you know how do we sit back as the richest country in the world which you know as measured by median wealth australia is the richest country in the world and we go oh yeah it's fair that one kid has forty thousand dollars spent on them on their education per year and another kid has 10 you know that's okay that's fair you know Kids that have literally just been born into better circumstances get four times the amount of money spent on them, and we and we don't blink an eye because it keeps the status quo, and that is the rich remain rich and the poor remain poor. And that's that's horrible.
0: Peter, are you um, are you optimistic about the way the direction that we're heading? I mean, you'd be in the wrong job if you weren't. Um, but are you? Uh, what What are your thoughts looking forward?
1: Well, ChatGPT is a game changer. It is absolutely. Okay. I don't and
0: think you comprehend how much of a game changer it is.
1: It's the only time that I've truly been excited in education in thirty years, because for the first time, a kid who comes from whatever circumstances might have not have English as a First language and all of those sort of things will have a tutor at home that they can ask anything of and give it, you know, get a quite a good response. That's a game changer. You know, a kid that's got learning difficulties who, you know, like myself used to stare at a blank page can just like, you know, dictate voice to text, you know, their thoughts on page, on, 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 on uh, into chat. And this is just chat three, not, not even four. Um, and it can turn it into something that sounds pretty good. That's giving voice to the voiceless. Mm. Um, You know, I'm hugely optimistic about AI. AI, you know, and we've only scratched the surface. Like, you know, there's predictions that the largest company in the world by 2030 will be an, an, an education company, and I can believe that because, you know, the notion that teachers are the font of all wisdom, like has long been broken, but... Think, think, about, think about an AI that knows you as an individual and has known you since you started school and it knows your peculiarities and quirks. It doesn't have any emotion. It's not, you know, you don't have to be embarrassed with it or anything like that. You can, you know, it, it knows you. You don't have to do any assessment because why would it need to assess you? It knows your strengths, knows exactly where you are, not point in time, but all points in time you know it can tell when you're going down a, a rabbit hole that you know many many kids go down and it can just give you a tweak before you you know rather than three weeks finding out that you don't understand bond mass or whatever the case might be like this is a game changer for education and it changes the role of educator to be one of guide rather than you know some sort of like powerful position where you know you're the gatekeeper of knowledge like that's this is going to be massive and I have huge crazy. of what this is going to do and you know like I've got a kid that's into entomology okay in chat GPT you can write a prompt give me 30 hours of uh, of learning for a 14 year old mapped to the Victorian curriculum with 10 learning assessment tasks 8 of which are hands-on and then, and then later give me a Give me a worksheet or a lesson plan for each of those. Now, you can never have individualized learning like that in the past, no no matter how much money you've got. This is a game changer where kids can literally learn what they want, when they want, and you can still tie it back to that meaningless curriculum if need be.
0: I have so many questions, Peter. And as I said, uh, I think we're going to have to do a round two at some point. But I just had a a couple of closing questions. Um, Imagine uh, we were sitting down having a very boring flat white um, at a cafe um, and I was just about to uh, I was just about to embark on a career in education. What advice would you give me um, as a recent graduate?
1: Do it. It's awesome. It's the only. It's it's one of the the few things that really makes a difference. Like you know, both both my kids are in the in the medical field, and I love that. You know, it's probably if I if I had not been dyslexic, that's what, where I would have ended up. And even even the dyslexic daughters going into that field, but um, because there's technology around now, which there just wasn't, mm. you know, when I was a kid. So she's she's you know reasonably dyslexic. And, um, yeah, and she's been able to using technology and the accommodations that the uni have given her have have managed to do that. But at the end of the day, all medicine can do is make you better. It can return you to the state that you were, whereas education can take you far beyond where you've ever been or thought you could.
0: Peter, I think that is a, a wonderful point to end our very broad and wide ranging discussion. And I am so, so grateful that you would uh, take the time and speak with me. I know it's getting late um, and I'm I'm just really uh, inspired about your work um, and yeah, I can't wait to find out more. So I, I'm so incredibly grateful. Thank you for taking the time.
1: No worries, Matt, I've really enjoyed it.